Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Wayment. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. We're talking today about what's being called a triple-demic, COVID, flu, and RSV. Joining us today here in the studio is pediatric infectious disease, Dr. Tess Barton. She's going on her 19th year in clinical practice, including UT Southwestern, Baylor College of Medicine, Mount Sinai in New York, and now here at UT Health San Antonio. Tess, thanks for being here on this episode of Pediatrics Now. Thanks for having me. First, you have a passion for helping children and families with HIV, and that's evolved. Yeah, that's actually um, when I finished my infectious disease fellowship. That was sort of what I wanted to do when I went into fellowship was do some HIV work and had an opportunity shortly after I finished my fellowship and had taken my first sort of pediatric job to take over the HIV clinic in Dallas, the pediatric HIV clinic in Dallas. And yeah, I spent um, almost 11 years there being the director of that clinic and, and the sort of primary care doctor for about 200 HIV infected children. Um, we have a summer camp and all sorts of other supportive activities, and um, that sort of evolved into global health work and tropical medicine work, um, as well as um, since that HIV-infected population has actually been aging, because one of the like great successes of HIV medicine is that infants only really rarely become infected with HIV anymore. So we don't have like an incoming stream of HIV infected young children and they were all growing up and becoming sassy teenagers and young adults. And so um, people who do pediatric HIV end up doing a lot of adolescent HIV medicine. And so kind of evolved my interests into global health, adolescent medicine. And I've sort of over the years managed to piece that together into kind of a variety of experiences. But yeah, that's that's sort of my passion are adolescents with with their eye rolling and their sassiness and the various infections that they get around the world. <laughs> well and speaking of experiences, you were in New York working with adolescents when the pandemic first hit. I was. In fact I had I had uh, kind of a a goofy little job as at Mount Sinai, not in infectious disease, but actually in the adolescent medicine division. Um, and I was working at a school um, as as the physician in a school-based clinic, um, as well as at an adolescent center um, in Manhattan. And uh, yeah, and so when, when COVID first hit, you know, we there we were at the school, schools hadn't closed yet. There was, you know, we were doing all sorts of planning for how we were going to keep our waiting room, you know, segregated and, and what kind of testing or, you know, what sorts of things that we would be doing, you know, to try to, as school, we anticipated school staying open um, and having to deal with people coming in. It was, it was also the very early days of COVID when we really didn't know much about the virus. And, and frankly, it was pretty scary because, you know, there was like every day the case count doubled and then, you know, the the tent hospital went up in Central Park and, you know, body trucks 
arrived oh. and they started digging mass graves. And so it was wow. really, it was, you know, like looking back, knowing kind of how COVID is now, you know, it was really scary at that point mm-hmm. in time. Um, and to be right there in the, sp- in, in the middle of it, trying to do kind of how do we keep our services open? How do we, you know, provide our services to our, our, our patients? And, you know, when the schools closed, we all moved over to the adolescent center, but we actually never closed. Like we never closed our clinic at all during any of the lockdowns. Um, wow. You know, we remained open, you know, s- six days a week providing providing care we had an altered schedule but um and i think we were pretty proud of of being able to to kind of institute some um screening and infection control methods right away um to in in the absence of testing it was before tests were even available um to to try to keep our patients healthy and make sure that they got their you know reproductive care services and their asthma medications and everything else that they needed was there one take-home message from that that experience? It must have been traumatic. I mean, it was traumatic, but I think that um, you know, first of all, our our at our center, we worked really well as a team, and um, but I think that you know, being being flexible in real time, you know, each 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 week we were adjusting, we were adjusting how we how we had our patient flow, how we set up the waiting area, you know, how we, you know, we had to change how, how patients were kind of assigned to people as they, as they came in, like the walk-ins versus the scheduled, how we did refills. We, you know, rapidly implemented a telephone service that previously really hadn't existed. And so I think that, um, you know, many times healthcare systems are giant and immovable and, you know, inflexible. We're sort of driven by, you know, are we going to get paid for this service or not? And I think that, you know, being able to sort of rapidly adjust um, in in the face of something that was in, of adversity or something that was scary um, was was really impressive. And and I would like to say that we keep those methods around, right? That we maintain that mm-hmm. um, as things sort of go back to what we you know perceived as normal so rather than sort of going back to the way it was pre-covid I, I i would hope that that the lesson that we learn is that maybe we can do things better and change some of the things that we do to accommodate our patients better i think telemedicine is probably a good example of that right so i think that for some patients telemedicine is great you know, rural patients or people who just need chronic r- refills on their chronic medications or things like that, and they just kind of need a check-in. Um, I think it, having that kind of service continue to be reimbursed, which is the thing that will promote healthcare systems to continue to do it, um, I think would be beneficial to people. Wow, and as, as we know, this won't be the last pandemic. No, no. I mean, we <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I wish I could say that, yeah, we're all done. But uh, no, you know, for a long time, uh, there have been concerns that pandemic viruses were coming. And it was always anticipated it would be a, an influenza virus and not a coronavirus. Um, but uh, there are, I mean, there are thousands, millions of viruses and the, the nature of viruses is that they are constantly, constantly changing and evolving as they infect 
the various hosts that they infect. And um, no, we will, it, it is without question that given, you know, kind of density of population, human behavior, interactions with the environment, interactions with animals, we're absolutely going to have more pandemic viruses coming. So tell us about you. I hear you like to travel and sometimes those trips are pretty adventurous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I um I do like to travel. I've actually something that I've missed during during sort of the pandemic and 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 not only the restrictions but also taking a new job and things like that, but yeah, so I I am I am an adventurous traveler. Um I probably don't obey most of the travel rules that I I give my patients when when I'm giving them travel advice <laughs> um, <laughs> right like rule number one is like never get on a motorcycle um, <laughs> but really? you know sometimes that's how you get around in in a, in a country so yeah I've um, you know my my traveling began when I was a pediatric resident and I arranged my own um, sort of away rotation in Haiti and um, and since then, I've been back to Haiti many times, which is um, which was always kind of rough and tumble. I've not been back in recent years when it's even even more um, difficult. But um, have yeah, I've, so I've worked in South Africa. Um, I did some training in Peru, although that was that was pretty easy travel. Um, and then lived for a year in Laos, and um, all of those things have taken me to. Lots of different places, lots of, you know, backcountry kind of exploration and, um, you know, fun, fun hikes recreationally and also fun, you know, experiences professionally. Is there one that stands out? Was it your time in Haiti or as 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 a as a, a fun, an interesting travel time? Yes. Um, so, oh goodness. Um, so, you know, I think that probably one of the, the first times where I truly experienced sort of culture shock um, with, with travel um, is when I was working with, um, we had a program at UT Southwestern where uh, we would send physicians to a rural HIV clinic in the Limpopo province of South Africa. So this is a very, um, it's... It's, it's a definitely, it's kind of a farming, underdeveloped area that has primarily farms and game, game reserves. So it's a, it's a big game reserve part of, our, of South Africa. And, um, and so we had a little, a little HIV clinic that saw both children and, and adults. And, um, and so part of, part of my job was to train the physicians who would be, who would be going to work there as far as HIV medicine, because most of them are people who had no HIV treatment experience. And, um, but, so in order to do that, of course, I felt like I needed to understand the context there. And, um, yeah, and so we lived on a, like a little cottage in the middle of an orange farm that was owned by the, by the doctor who was also a farmer. Um, and, uh, and then going to this clinic. And I think that, um, the way seeing how 
um, first of all, living in a place like that, you know, where the, like a bat flew into my cottage and I, you know, didn't know what a to bat. do about a bat. And it was like walking around on its elbows, which is really gross. And because that's how they walk when they're on the ground. And, and you know all the diseases. Right. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get rabies. And I like shut myself in the room. And then I realized it was like walking towards the door and I was trapped in the room with no other exit. And, you know, like oh. silly things like that. And um, to, you know, seeing how uh, people ran their day at the clinic, you know, kind of beginning with these amazing um, songs and prayers that the staff would do as kind of team building, which, you know, we don't do here. Like we have like, we'll do a huddle where we talk about our patients, but, you know, we don't like sing uh, an inspirational song at the Mm -hmm. beginning of every shift. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And uh, to, you know, being... Uh, and then, but then you would have patients who were, you know, they would get brought in at, at, like, in a severe, severe state, like, really, really ill. And, you know, here, those patients would be like, oh, my gosh, you've got to go to the emergency room and get admitted to the hospital now. And there, you know, if you said to the patient, you've got to go to the hospital, they would just, like, burst into tears because the hospital's where people would go to die. Really? Um, wow. Right. I mean, because of course, like the hospital's full of really, really sick people in mm-hmm. a develop, you know, in a, in an underdeveloped area and a resource limited, you know, hospital. You know, the the outcomes are not always very good, and um, and so, kind of learning to understand, sort of what the patients, sort of how that was really different for them compared to here. And, and also seeing, you know, the reliance on, like, home-based care, which is difficult for us to do here, you know, like having a team who they would be in your clinic and they had a little list of patients and you would say, hey, can you go check on this person? And they would get in the little mobile van and tootle out with a nurse to go check on a patient and then come back and report to you how that person was doing. Um, and that's kind of how you manage the more severely ill patients, um, through kind of direct direct nursing care right there in their home. And it was kind of beautiful. So um, I think seeing, you know, seeing what was considered normal and acceptable in a different context um, as a physician was really, really valuable. And, I, and, and so I feel like I've gotten that all the different places I've been. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. It, it sounds amazing. Yeah. And did the bat fly out or did you have to run or? Uh, the bat unfortunately met uh, an unfortunate end uh. um, because the um, uh, Mrs. Ferrant, the farmer's wife, came over with the tennis racket and dispatched with the bat. Oh wow! Um, which I felt bad about because I actually really like bats. But I do too. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it was it, it actually got itself um, stuck up behind the refrigerator. Because, you know, bats, oh, they, get in, they get themselves into little crevices, and it flapped its way up the wall between the refrigerator and the wall. And that was, when we knocked it down, it didn't, it didn't make it. Well, we're glad you're I'm okay. sorry to say. And, um, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, bats of the world. <laughs> well, and one more question before we uh, dive into talking about the, the flu. Do you have a favorite quote, and Why? Um, I love quotes. I I do, and I, and I have. I mean, I have a few, and um, and I always, I don't know, like I, 
uh, my grandma always had these like little sayings, but I, and I don't want to say something like really profound like that, but, but actually one of the, one of the things that was kind of a pivotal time for me, a pivotal moment for me was actually a fortune cookie. Um, <laughs> a fortune cookie. Um, fortune said, if you do not change where, um, if you do not change your direction, you will end up where you are headed. Um, it's really profound. It is, right? And so I think that, you know, we all have times in our lives where we are like, you know, you have a plan or maybe you don't have a plan and you're going down a way that maybe you don't really want to go and and you have to, you know, adjust it now to sort of change that 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 later outcome. And I, I don't know why, but that speaks to me. So, Thank you for sharing that with us. I, I love that. <laughs> so let's start with the flu. And here I am masked up. We had to delay this recording by more than a week because I was sick um, with some sort of respiratory virus. But how terrible is this flu season? It's here. It's bad, right? Yeah, yeah. This flu season. Um, so first of all, the flu season typically begins in December and runs through January um, and is usually, you know, fairly bad. So we started having about three, four weeks ago, clearly an upswing in the flu. And it went from being, you know, kind of number four or five on that first week that it started appearing to skyrocketing the number one virus that we're seeing within a couple of weeks. The number one. Yes, yeah. yes. So, and, and, you know, we get this weekly virus testing update from, from the hospital. And, um, yeah, and so the flu is absolutely here in full force, um, earlier than expected and in huge numbers. Is it so bad because we've been necessarily protected from germs during covid the hardest parts of the pandemic? Um, probably. You know, I think there's, you, you, you never really know, is, is a flu season bad because the flu strain is bad? Um, or is it because of, you know, human, a lack of human immunity? Sometimes it's bad because it's a brand new strain. So far, it's the, the predominant strain has been, I think, uh, H3N2. It's been, it's been a flu strain that's actually been around for a little while and, and one that is included in the current flu vaccine. Um, so, yeah, I think it's likely that, you know, for the last two years, um, we've been fairly protective with our with our masking and, and some of our other other measures of not not getting exposed to the flu. So, yeah, our 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 immunity that we you know kind of maintain over time by getting exposed to things has has fallen off a little bit. I also think that people. Um, it is it is early. It's kind of right, you know, like we normally start giving flu vaccines in, in September, October. Right. And then we right away started having the flu. So usually we try to vaccinate before the flu season hits so that you have time to build up your immunity. And so we people haven't had that time. Like, you know, if you got your flu vaccine in the beginning of October and flu skyrocketed the second week of October, then, you know, we're, we're already a little bit behind the ball. But I also think that people aren't getting their flu vaccines. So what should we be telling our patients? Uh, get your flu vaccine is the first thing. So, um, you know, we, we, we're all familiar with the flu. Like we know that the flu um, can be a pretty miserable viral illness, a pretty severe cold. And, you know, most of it, most of us, it will come and go. And then for some people, it 
will have complications and be severe and land them in the hospital. And, you know, for 30,000 or so people a year, they will die. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the things remain true that have always been true. So, you know, flu vaccines are modestly effective at preventing the flu. They'll cut your, cut your chance about in half of getting the flu. Um, and, you know, staying home when you're sick so that you're not infecting everybody else. Um, you know, washing your hands, especially if you're in a place where you're maybe touching things that other people are touching, the workplace or the store, um, you know, think places like that. Um, yeah. And what if a patient asks, you know, I, did, I don't know if I've had the flu recently or not. Should I still get the vaccine? Yes, absolutely. So the vaccine that we that's currently given, um, most people get what's called a quadrivalent vaccine, and that's actually got four different four different strains of the flu in it. Every year, um, we usually get two or three different strains circulating. It's usually a couple of strains of influenza A and one st one or more strain of influenza B. So there's a there's a zillion different flu viruses, and so each year the vaccine is kind of adjusted or tweaked based on predictions of what the next round of flu viruses are going to be. Sometimes the vaccine manufacturers do a great job at predicting that, and sometimes they do a less great job of predicting that. Um, and, and so even if you've had the flu, that means you've had one strain of the flu. But you could still get another strain of the flu, um, and you can have flu again. So um, absolutely, I, I would suggest somebody who's had the flu you know, go ahead and get the flu vaccine. There's not a prescribed, like, waiting period after you've had the flu before getting the flu vaccine. So you could just go ahead and get it as soon as you feel like you're no longer contagious and you're up for going out and getting a shot. That's great to know. And let's look at a case. Say you have a patient. A mom comes in with an elementary school kid. We'll call him Adam. He came home from school with flu-like symptoms he has a baby sibling and also an older sibling with asthma. Mm -hmm. First steps. Yeah. So, um, so the first thing is that, you know, we actually do have treatments for the flu. Um, so we have, there's a medication, an oral medication called Oseltamivir um, or Tamiflu. And, um, and so if, it, if a child or an adult comes home and it's within the first 48 hours of their symptoms, that's actually the optimal time to begin treatment. And you can shorten the duration of their illness and kind of get them back to their, to their usual, you know, their usual life. And so, um, so ideally, you know, Adam's mom should take him to the pediatrician, get a rapid flu test. Um, and if that flu test is positive to go ahead and start him on, um, on Oseltamivir. Um, many times we recommend that if the symptoms are classic for influenza, regardless of, of the test, right, even if you don't have access to a test, to go ahead and, and, and do oseltamivir. If he tests positive, there are also um, that same medication can actually be used for prevention in, in some people. So it's actually um, FDA approved, I believe, for prevention purposes for 12 months and over. I hope I have that right. Uh, for 12 months and over. Um, and, and again, within the first few days after an influenza exposure, um, a person who is high risk, a young child, a person with heart disease, a person with, you know, uh, asthma, 
um, or immunosuppressed. I mean, they don't have to be high risk. It could be anybody, or maybe it's somebody who just can't miss work, right? Because they're the breadwinner of their family Mm -hmm. can actually potentially take that medication to, you know, to prevent themselves from getting the flu. And the way that works is that the, you know, that flu virus enters your body, it gets into a cell, but the medication is already there and it blocks it before it continues to spread. Okay, thank you for for that. Well, let's move on to RSV. Just the other night on ABC Network News, the lead story, health experts say, RSV season is unprecedented. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah, so similar to the flu, we've had uh, kind of a wacky RSV season. So normally, so I mentioned that the flu um, usually appears around December and lasts through January. So RSV typically appears around around October, November. So it kind of precedes the flu by a couple of months, and it usually peaks and kind of fizzles out, and then the flu, around the time that RSV is fizzling out, the flu comes on, and it peaks and fizzles out. That's kind of our normal, win- what we call the winter virus season. Um, so this year, we actually had a surge in RSV in the summer, which we n- never have, at least in Texas. We don't usually have that. Um, and that started to subside, and then again around September, um, RSV came back again in full force. And uh, you know, last week in at University Hospital on the pediatric ward, so I, you know, as I'm, Where I'm doing <laughs> right, I'm doing my consults on patients, and I, I go in to look at the board and. I think that day they had like 34 patients, which was like maxed out full for them. And it was just like RSV, 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 RSV on their, on their board. So, um, so now, of course, flu has overtaken RSV as the number one virus that we're detecting. But RSV is right there at number two. So, um, so we're seeing a lot of RSV. We're also seeing it in kind of older children than, than we normally see it in. Usually it's young infants who get hospitalized with RSV, and we have seen um, bigger kids, toddler kids, and preschoolers um, getting hospitalized, which is a little bit unusual. Also, perhaps because of being protected from germs? Yes, yeah. So so this is um, something that we would call the immunity gap. Um, it's sometimes what, what people refer that have, have been ref- talking about. Um, and essentially, you know, we get we get exposed to viruses all the time and and we you know we get exposed to them our immune system reacts to them we maybe we get the disease right maybe we get sick from them or maybe not and um, then we built up a little bit of immunity and then when that virus we breathe it in again that that exposure to that same virus again kind of reminds our immune system that that exists, and it, it it wakes you know it makes a few more antibodies, um, and and it kind of maintains a level of immunity. So yeah, so back in you know 2020, n- people weren't at school, people you know were masked, and so and we had zero like we had no RSV, like almost none. It was a non-existent RSV season, and um, because we were all protecting ourselves with, you know, a little piece of cloth on our face from, from viruses. And, um, and, then, and then in the summer, this past summer, once we sort of stopped doing all those things because we were kind of sick and tired of them, 
we didn't we didn't build up the immunity during the winter to those viruses, but they were still kind of percolating around in low numbers, and so we started getting them again. And now that it's you know winter time, you know it's not winter time for us because it's actually pretty nice out, but um, pretty warm. But now today. that it's getting cooler, <laughs> but now that it's getting cooler, um, right. you know the viruses are growing a little bit more easily. We're back in school. We're kind of back to a more regular work schedule. People are going back into the office. You know we're going to baseball games and football games and, you know, all those things that are fun and um, in an indoor setting. And so it's easier for viruses to spread around when they're in a contained airspace. And, um, yeah, and we – and so I think that, you know, now we're getting exposed to them, but we don't have that immunity anymore. We have a gap in, in the immunity that we've built up. And hospitals nationwide are – Everywhere. Everywhere it's is dealing with, with, with RSV and with the flu no right now. Yes. Places are full. Places are on diversion. You know. Is there any advice you have there for pediatric community uh, practitioners? So, I mean, so for the practitioner, I think that pediatricians, pediatricians are, are accustomed to dealing with winter virus season. That's always been a tough time for a, a pediatric inpatient ward as well as pediatric offices. Um, they all know that this is this is rough. And pediatricians are, are usually good at if they're, you know, if their office space allows, or having a sick waiting room and a well waiting room um, and, and things like that. I do think that, you know, encouraging our patients to get their flu vaccine, so at least maybe that's one less virus that we actually have to worry about um, at the moment. Um, and uh, and then more importantly than the pediatricians, probably with families, um, I can't emphasize enough that I think that when, you know, what I would hope one of the things that the pandemic would have taught us, although I don't think it has, is that, mm -hmm. <laughs> is that when we are sick, we shouldn't go to work or school because that's how we spread these things to each other. Um, Great and, advice. And I think that we should, I mean, and I know that's easy to say and difficult for people to do, um, it, financially, yes. but, um, but I, you know, I, I wish that we had sort of the, the, the policies in place or, you know, the culture, workplace and school culture, um, where we're not expected to be there when we are contagious to other people. Which is great. I definitely feel that working here at UT Health, which is mm -hmm. really nice. It was such a relief, you know, being able to do, we can just reschedule, you know, or, yeah. or have a virtual call, right? right. So um, what about, you know, as we know, there's not an RSV vaccine right now, but there's hope on the horizon, the Pfizer there, vaccine? There is, yeah. So, um, so, you know, yeah, so there was recently a publication um, of the, so there's actually Pfizer and GSK, I think both have RSV vaccines in their pipeline. There's a long history of, of a failed RSV vaccine back in the 60s. And, um, and so there's, even though RSV has been kind of the sort of the biggest bugaboo for young babies um, as the virus that, that really, really hits babies hard um, and results in lots of hospitalizations and, and some deaths, um, that we haven't had a vaccine for it. Um, partly because of a failed vaccine in the 60s. And so, um, so yeah, so there's a new vaccine strategy, um, which is a vac rather than kind of the whole, a whole dead virus um, of using 
the a, a piece of the virus that 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 your body when you make antibodies against that piece of the virus it results in clearance of that virus out of the out of the body and um, and so the new RSV vaccine um, is being studied in in um, elderly people who actually have also a high rate of 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 illness and death from RSV, um, as well as pregnant women. And so the pregnant women will, because their immune systems are more developed than an infant immune system, they can develop really good antibodies, and those antibodies will actually cross the placenta um, so that the infant has the mom's antibodies in, in his or her blood for the first several months of life that can help to prevent them from getting RSV. And so there's a, the published paper was a phase 2B study, which is kind of a early safety and dose-finding study um, that, that looked pretty good. The phase 3 trial, um, which uh, hasn't, I didn't, hasn't been published yet, but the sort of brief that's been put out by the, 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 the manufacturers, the pharmaceutical companies that make those vaccines. Um, it looks like the Pfizer vaccine was studied in, in, in like uh, 7,700 women and looks about 80% protective against hospitalizations from RSV, um, which is great. So, um, so I think that I know that they, the Data Safety and Monitoring Board, which is a, a part of the FDA that, that has the ability to review safety of products before even the investigators know, um, was able to review that and, and thought that it looked promising and actually suggested that they um, file for approval for that vaccine um, prior to next year's RSV season. So it won't be available now, um, but it is something that potentially will be available before next year's RSV season to protect babies, and that's pretty cool. That is really cool, and we are going to interview Dr. Michael Odom about research on studies that are happening here and the antibody um, study, so that's coming up. Um, So here on Pediatrics Now, we'd like to have a few questions answered, if possible, from community pediatric practitioners. So here's one anonymous question uh, from a doctor. Um, what about Synegis? Mm-hmm. Am I saying that right? Synegis, yeah. Synegis. Um, is that still an option for high-risk infants to prevent RSV? If so, what are the criteria, and how do we go about getting it for our patients? Sure. So, um, so Synegis is a is a is a monoclonal antibody. The, it's it's um, name is actually polyvizumab is the is the other name for that and um and it is a monoclonal antibody that is approved for particular high-risk infants um uh, during the rsv season and they get they get an injection once a month um for five months which should give them six months of protection against against that virus. Um, it's very effective at preventing RSV infections. Um, and so there is a, actually a whole list of, of criteria. The um, In August, the AAP, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, updated their guidance with, um, you know, answering specific questions. And so I would urge pediatricians to actually just to, to go look at that because it is something that kind of, the, the nuances of it change here and there. In general, um, premature infants, um, very premature infants um, are, are eligible um, uh, in, if, as in their first two years of, 
of life um, during the RSV season, uh, kind of modestly premature infants um, who have uh, lung disease or heart disease, um, who required oxygen or who are on oxygen chronically, also um, qualify. Um, children with congenital heart diseases um, qualify. There are other groups of people that you that are um, it's not specifically approved for, but um, uh, such as transplant patients who um, also are eligible to get that. It is not it is not approved um, or recommended for people with asthma or sickle cell or some other other conditions. So you do it is worthwhile to sort of look at those conditions. It's generally children under two, um, and uh, and and not those who are who are older. So. Okay, and before we um, move on to COVID, let's take a quick case. Um, a two-month-old patient, Iris, comes in for her well checkup in the wintertime. What do you do? So for a two-month, so a two-month-old is coming in for her well child check. So she's, um, so from a, an, an infection prevention standpoint, she of course should be getting all of her routine infant vaccines, um, and and so. In the wintertime, a two-month-old is at particular risk of viruses. Their little nasal passages are very small. They can't handle the mucus production. Um, they require their noses to breathe. They are nose breathers and not mouth breathers, and so, which makes it worse. If your nose is full of snot and you stick a bottle in your mouth, you suddenly have no way to breathe at all. And so um, winter viruses really disrupt their ability to feed, um, their ability to sleep, and, and of course can cause pneumonias and other things. So what we would recommend is that um, she get her routine vaccines. Ideally, she should really be out, uh, not in daycare, if that family can handle that, right? If that's an option for the family to not be in a setting that is full of other children with runny noses, mm -hmm. um, that will help to protect her. Until um, age six months, is that the current? Yeah, more or less. I mean, th there's not like a hard and fast, but yes, I mean, for the first six months of life is when you're really, really vulnerable. And definitely for the first three months of life, you're, you're especially vulnerable. To RSV. You know, and to all the viruses. Yeah. And I mean, RSV is like the worst one, but any of them. And, you know, it does make things like Thanksgiving and Christmas a little hard. Like I wouldn't, pass the baby to everybody at, you know, at the gathering because somebody's going to give that baby, you know, their, their cooties. Um, so the other thing though, is that, that, that infant is too young to get her influenza vaccine. So the way that we protect babies against the flu is actually if we can keep the flu out of the house and the way that we keep the flu out of the house is by vaccinating all the other people who live in the house. And that way, if they're less likely to get the flu, they're less likely to bring it home to Iris. And you talked about Thanksgiving. I remember, I think it was two Novembers ago, we were out on the lawn <laughs> and I was videoing you uh, giving advice. Uh, the pandemic was new, but it was advice that, that uh, ran in morning announcements in a lot of schools uh, locally about how to keep you and your family safe. So messages for kids. Um, We've come a long way since then, but COVID is, is obviously still here and a threat. What advice, where are we now? I mean, I woke up this morning to 
um, on NPR hearing about two new subvariants for Omicron. Yes, yes. So, I mean, COVID is still here, and COVID um, has been on the decline for the past several weeks, months or so, um, and that's good. We, um, yeah, but as as we have already seen in the past with COVID, it is a rapid mutator, and um, variants pop up quickly, and and every now and then some of these variants sort of stick, right? And so there are, we've been dealing with a variant called BA5, um, and it has been sort of the dominant variant for the past few months. Incidentally, maybe not incidentally, but FYI, that the, that the spike protein from that BA5, um, the code for that is actually in, that, in the new bivalent booster, that is recommended, and that's recommended for people five years and up, right? So those children as well as adults can now get that bivalent booster that will provide some protection against the variant that's currently, that has been currently circulating. That's fantastic. Which is different than kind of what we've had. And mm -hmm. so I would encourage people to still go get it because that variant is still, still around. Now, over the past few weeks, looking at the Department of Health Services, the DHSH website, um, <laughs> DSHS website, mm -hmm. uh, on, um, for Texas, is that, that, that there, I there are new variants coming. And so currently there's one called the BQ, there's a BQ1 and the BQ11, but the BQ um, is probably the one to be on the lookout for. So there's one called the BA46 that appeared in August, and it's been making up about 10% of our cases, but that's actually been stable. It hasn't been increasing, but the BQ has actually been increasing in the past few weeks and is now up to about a quarter of the cases are one of these BQ variants. Um, so yes, we have a new variant coming. Um, just in time for winter virus season when we have the other viruses around too. So we're, I think we're about to be in kind of being blasted with a bunch of viruses time um, over, you know, probably in late November and December is it's going to be a, a, a virus palooza um, for us. And given that, any advice for pediatric practitioners, what should we be telling our patients? Well, first of all, for pediatric practitioners, I would get ready, right? So I would get, I would order all of your COVID tests and your flu tests and your strep tests and, you know, all those things to, you know, to be prepared for kind of the, on and your PPE, right, to be prepared for the onslaught. Um, we also, and to go ahead and order flu vaccines and, and the COVID vaccines, you know, we're kind of transitioning from the sort of you know, government subsidized vaccine strategy to kind of like it always is where it's, you know, your, where you, you, your insurance pays for them or you pay for them or maybe the state pays for them. Um, so we're kind of going to the regular way that vaccines are given instead of the free vaccines everywhere model. So, um, so I would say pediatricians to, to be prepared because coming. And, should we be giving advice about Thanksgiving and the other holidays, gatherings to patients? I mean, we, we, we can give advice. I, I guess, I guess I've, I, I've gotten jaded <laughs> that anybody's going to follow the advice. 
<laughs> I know it's hard. I, <laughs> it's hard, right? And 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 after a couple of years of COVID, like we are all sick and tired of it. But but this is going to be a pretty bad winter virus season, and um, and so I I do think that you know uh, we should we should keep our gatherings small, and we and if you're sick, don't go. Like don't go to the gathering if you're sick. You know, like maybe that will let other people have fun at the gathering without, you know, coming down with with whatever illness that is. And if a child is coughing, I hear a lot of like, maybe that's allergies. That's what, you know, you know, it's winter virus season. Maybe it's allergies, but it's not allergy season. It's winter virus season. So, um, yeah, I, I was actually at the at one of the museums in town the other day, and there was a little kid in front of me. He was like, <laughs> coughing, yeah. coughing, coughing. And I was just like, was it really necessary for that, like, toddler to go to the museum today? Right, that's um, a great Because point. I'm not sure that the toddler was really appreciating yes. the museum. I'm, I'm sure that everybody needed to get out of the house, but... Um, go out, it would be better to go outside, do something. Right, and then, so it, it made me a little bit, you know a little bit hesitant to like, ooh, touch the alligator <laughs> Right. You know? <laughs> See how dinosaurs yeah. work, you know, and touch the button. Like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know what that kid was touching. I think I'm going to keep my hands to myself. I, I spend a lot of time in community pediatric clinics, and a lot of doctors tell me about they see two extremes, uh, patients who are really careful about COVID, just ultra careful, and then the, the other extreme where it really never was anything um, – I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to get vaccinated. In fact, I, you know, some and patients still telling them they think they got something because of the vaccine. Like, is there a one line you would suggest to say, you know, where they're dealing with so much, even parents asking to write notes so they, you know, the child can go back to school while they're still sick, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. So, um, so as far as, you know, vaccine and COVID, all like, I mean, like there are some people who will, they will never their personal belief will never be swayed. Uh, and we have to understand, we have to recognize that. Um, I do think that pediatricians do have, do have a fair amount of influence, and, but not a lot of time, especially in the winter virus season when you're like your clinic or your practice is packed full with you know, people coughing and sneezing. I think that um, telling patients that you... You know, I believe in the, like, my, my, my investigation into this vaccine is that the vaccine is safe, it is effective. Is it 100% effective? No. But it's effective, and it may cut your chance in half or maybe more, right, um, depending on how, how old you are. Um, and I got the vaccine, and I got the and I got my kids the vaccine. I gave my own kids the vaccine, right? Um, and I think that parents, if 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 they know that their pediatrician was willing to do that or was interested in doing that for themselves or their own family, um, I think that that means a lot to them. And um, and I also will sometimes say to my patients, like I I'm I'm not going to recommend something to you that I think is going to hurt you. Like, I, I want to keep you healthy. That's my goal. I'm not making money off of this. I, I, I believe that this is, there's a benefit to doing this, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that you do it if I thought it was going to hurt you. Um, 
That's wonderful. I don't know what the success rate of that is, but I, I think that that's probably the most understanding and respectful approach that we can give to those families. Before we wrap up this episode of Pediatrics Now, one last question uh, from another pediatrician in the community. She says, I would love a review of updated COVID recommendations from the CDC and what people are really doing for testing, timeframes, et cetera, for families, school, daycare. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great question because one of the things that we've encountered, and we, you know, we talked about early on in the episode, kind of the need to be flexible and change as, you know, new information came or, you know, things changed and, 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 and that's exactly kind of what the CDC did, but unfortunately has been, has been sort of translated into sort of information overload and fatigue because who knows what the recommendations are now. They've changed like so many times. It's hard to keep up. So it is hard to keep up. So two things. So as of today or as of yesterday, when, when I, because I had to go look, I'm like, I was like, I mean, I do this all the time, but I was like, well, mm -hmm. let me just verify, because I know that things change, right? So currently, for a person who comes in, and they're sick, and they test positive for COVID, um, it is recommended that they isolate for five days, I think you remember five and 10, so the recommendation is five days, they stay at home, they attempt to stay away from people in their household if they're able to do that. If they absolutely have to go out to other places, that they absolutely should be wearing a mask. Um, after five days, if they don't have fever and they're feeling better, they can return to work or school but should still wear a mask until day 10. If they're not feeling better or if they still have fever, they should test again. They should stay isolated until they're not having fever and feeling better. For somebody who is exposed, they're no longer required to isolate. You know, if, 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 if their kid had COVID or, or their grandpa had COVID or whatever, they're no longer required to, like, stay at home and not be able to go to school or work. They can go, but they've been exposed. They should mask. So just like if you've had it, you should mask for 10 days. You, if you're exposed, you should mask for 10 days. They do recommend that you do a test after the fifth day um, if you're not having any symptoms. And if you're not having any symptoms, five days after your exposure, you're clear and free to go on about your business. There, the CDC actually has a website. If you go to their like COVID website, it was a long URL, so I didn't I don't think it would verbally translate. But they have a, a link to what's called the, the COVID isolation calculator. And, and when you go to the COVID isolation calculator on the CDC website, it asks you, did you test positive, did you test negative, when was the day that you were exposed, are you experiencing symptoms, blah, blah, blah. And it will tell you explicitly, you can go back to work on this day, you should wear a mask until this day with the date. And so, um, you know, that's not, in, in a busy practice, it's probably not, you know, that feasible to be pulling up the CDC website for every single patient who comes in with COVID. Um, but it, it's a useful tool to give to families, you know, to make a little smart phrase with the hyperlink in it that you can put on there, you know, you can send them, you know, on your, on the EMR or on their visit summary um, that they can also then say, oh, well, my grandma wanted to know she was around them this day. D what does she need to do? that they can go to the COVID isolate, isolation calculator and look it up. It sounds like a great resource. 
before we go, should we mention monkeypox, polio? Sure. What do you want to know about monkeypox and polio? Where, where are we now, right now on that? So, um, I, last I checked, I think we've had 141 monkeypox cases in Bear County. Um, so, which is which is a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we uh, the num- the case the numbers are declining. Like, we still are getting a few cases here and there. Um, but it, you know, it's not like exploding or, or on the rise. So it looks like that's pretty stabilized. I will say that that's, um, likely due to really good and smart public health measures, you know, so identifying who is at risk, um, mobilizing, uh, a small pox vaccine that's effective against monkey pox and, and making that vaccine available to high risk people, um, right away. I know that, so, you know, I, I still work in an HIV clinic setting, um, and, and so that HIV clinic is mostly an adult HIV clinic, and, um, and so that, that population does have a higher risk of, of monkeypox infection, and so, you know, we've, giving back, you know, people are making their appointments, they're coming in, they're getting their monkeypox vaccine, and, um, and I think that's, that's been very successful at, at getting monkeypox sort of un, under control. Um, it's still around, um, but, but getting that under control and preventing kind of a, a, wider, a wider outbreak. What about polio? So polio is kind of interesting. You know, we, don't, we, haven't, we haven't had polio in the U.S. in years uh, until this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and, and so we had this one case in New York, and uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of buzz about finding polio in the wastewater, um, which is actually a really cool, a whole other cool thing that you guys should do a segment on, like wastewater surveillance and what that's all about, because that's pretty neat. And um, so, um, but, but there weren't any further cases. And, um, you know, we do, we... The, the polio that was in New York was um, was what's called vaccine associated polio so it was a vaccine strain of the of, of, of polio which is only in the oral polio so the oral polio vaccine is a live virus polio vaccine um, we don't use that vaccine in the United States anymore we haven't used it for many many years um, it's not given at all and so what happened is that people who somebody who had that vaccine, in another country, um, came visiting or moving, however, and came, and they were shedding that virus in their stool. And they they weren't sick because usually they're not. Um, and somebody who was not immune um, picked up that virus from them and then and then got sick. So um, that's actually why we don't give that vaccine in the United States anymore. But it is important that people maintain their polio immunity because we do have a global world, right? We're exposed to people from other other places all the time. Or we do, you know, exciting travel to other right. places where we might get exposed to people who, who have who've received oral polio vaccine. Especially if you're Dr. Tess Barton. Yes, especially <laughs> especially if you're yes, especially if you're tootling around in the farms in, you know, South Africa or, you know, out in a waterfall in Laos or something. You're 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 yes, you're gonna potentially get exposed to to somebody else's you know, vaccine live polio that they're shedding in their stool after they got vaccinated, um, and if you're immune, you're 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 fine. You're going to be immune, and you're going to fight that off. 
I'm going to look into that uh, wastewater episode. I do <laughs> piqued my curiosity. So um, thank you. And do you have a trip on the horizon? I, you know, I maybe we're, uh, I'm contemplating a return to Machu Picchu, but this time on the Inca Trail. That will be purely a, uh, purely a pleasure trip and not, not a professional trip. Tess Barton, Pediatric Infectious Disease Doctor at UT Health San Antonio and University Hospital. Thank you so much for being here on Pediatrics Now. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit. Let's end with a quote by Nelson Mandela. History will judge us by the difference we make in the everyday lives of children. Thank you for making a difference and for listening to Pediatrics Now. Stay tuned for our next episode coming next week.